Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is really, really important for healthcare staff during this COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. And so today we are combining two passions of mine, quality improvement or QI and well-being, and talking about how we might use QI as an approach to improving well-being. Kat, I'm really interested to be recording this episode today because I have to say I know that you are a big quality improvement person, but it's not something that I know much about, especially not how it links to well-being. So I think this is going to be um, really good to learn more about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think until I heard um, our guests speak, uh, I don't think I'd ever really connected the dots between how QI and well-being might interact either. So I think this is kind of going to be a learning journey and conversation for all of us. Um, but I am really excited to hear it more, uh, as you say. Um, and I think what I'm interested in doing is being, I suppose, a little bit detached from it and trying to think um, broadly about, you know, how QI approaches might work for some people, but also, I suppose, reflecting on what the limitations might be and, and trying to see that from both sides. So without further ado, we are delighted to welcome on the podcast someone who has been, I'm going to say, experimenting with QI and well-being. Um, please, could you introduce yourself? Sure, Abby and Kat, thanks for having me. I'm Pedro Delgado, Vice President at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, overseeing the work of IHI in Europe, Latin America, and Australasia. I'm also a father of two girls, an athlete, a husband, a brother, a son. So there's so much more to me than just work. Uh, So I'm delighted to be here. I love the introduction. I love that you brought in your non-work aspects. We don't get that very often, but that's brilliant. I mean, let me say something about that. It, it's it's funny um, the way that we have somehow been indoctrinated, I would say, socially, to uh, think about work and life is as two separate buckets. In fact, we use this work-life balance. I mean, how much time do we spend in work? I would cross the word work and just replace it for life balance. If we thought about it that way, I think we probably would stand a better chance to find a balance. I think that's a really great point and a nice place to kick off this this podcast today. Yeah, I feel like we should redo our introductions, Abby, <laughs> with all those extra bits of information. Um, anyway, but to to move on to the the sort of topic at hand, Pedro. Um, what prompted you to sort of start reflecting on on your well-being and how you might improve it? So there was a there was a recent trigger, Kat, which is familiar to all of us who inhabit the planet that you, Abby, and I inhabit, which is COVID, right? Uh, COVID kind of is a disruptor of our lives, one way or another. For some, it meant severely increasing workloads. For others, it meant separation from loved ones. For others, it meant deprivation of some liberties that we've tended to have. And I think for for everyone, it meant an opportunity at least to pause and reflect. And, and for me, the, the kind of pursuit of well-being has been a lifelong, ongoing, evolving construct. And COVID, I think, just provided an opportunity to go a little deeper. And I had the privilege, as opposed to, to frame some of my thinking 
in a in a in a speak in a speech I gave at the IHIBMJ International Forum recently. So it was a it was a lovely opportunity to put together some ideas that I've had for a very long time. But primarily, my my sense uh, around our well being is that unless we're intentional about caring for ourselves, uh, life kind of runs too fast, and uh, and we forget. And we forget ourselves. How counterintuitive is that? <laughs> so I think there is a, an opportunity for all of us to pause and reflect on where we are and how we want to be inside of ourselves. And Pedro, we've mentioned quality improvement a few times and I've already said that I don't really know what it is. I mean, from a very naive point of view, the only thing I know about quality improvement is that people do projects on it. So then when I think of you doing that with your well-being, I'm wondering, do you have a spreadsheet and you tick off when you've done your well-being for the day? Or So I'm wondering if we could just take a step back and you can talk a bit about what quality improvement is and how it works in the context of, of well-being. Sure. And, and I'll be very plain, Abby, in describing our, our kind of natural instinct and inherent nature as improvers. And I'll give you a few examples. So we're born and the very first thing that we are invited to do is to seek to be fed. So we search for our mother's breast and we try and we fail and we try again and we fail. And it's only by trying, failing, and improving our approach to breastfeeding that we get there. Uh, then I'll give you a couple more, just as we evolve, we eventually, uh, most of us end up uh, with the ability to walk. And doing that means that we lie on our fronts, then we roll over, which is quite fun. Then we start kind of crawling and falling, then we grab onto the sofa and go across the sofa and people laugh at us and so on. And, and then we start walking and fall and then we jog and then we run. So improvement or continuous improvement, if I was to scrap the word quality, just to detechnify improvement is something that's inherent to all of us. Eventually over time, what we learned as a society, starting from manufacturing is that by standardizing a little bit more what we do, by uh, having an approach where we learn from the data in order to improve processes, in order to get to better outcomes, we gave quality improvement a structure. But we've been improvers uh, since forever, I would say, uh, intuitively. That's why I think it's a lovely fit with uh, well-being. The other fact around well-being is that I am convinced that there there has to be a little bit of intentionality. That's why the title of my talk was Intentionally Well. I think one of the principles of quality improvement is that we set aims, how much, by when, and for whom. So imagine if we had a couple of aims around the well-being, you know, I want to run five miles per week by December 2021. It kind of becomes something a bit more tangible. And you, you, you mentioned the spreadsheet. Of course, we can all get very nerdy and have things, and I do measure things. And in fact, in the in the kind of evolution of my daughter's test taking, I'm not a champion for tests as an evaluation of anybody's knowledge, so I don't like them. But we had to go through the school system and they're 11 and 15. So we, in a very nerdy way from me, <laughs> we tracked with a pencil on a piece of paper their scores so that they would understand kind of where they were. 
and where they want it to be. So you can get very nerdy, but improvement is intuitive and you can structure it a bit more by being intentional. Thank you. I really like this idea of being intentional about well-being, and I, I think it is really important. We so often reflect on how it gets squeezed out when other pressures um, become more more to the forefront and actually that's the time when you kind of need that intentional a sort of well-being activity the most i suppose one of the things that i struggle with a bit about this um how we might initially read this approach is this idea that um you know when you're learning to walk you can't do it and then you practice and you try and you fail and then you reach the stage where you can do it or you know with this idea of setting an aim for well-being you want to run five miles and you kind of achieve something and I suppose my experience of my own well-being is very much not a kind of linear progression from you know it being at a certain level to achieving and maintaining another level of well-being it's really much more of a roller coaster of um you know uh, sort of better patches and worse patches and and so you know how can we sort of i haven't really expressed this but you know how can we talk about it in a way that captures that kind of ongoing project i don't feel like i'm ever going to be done with maintaining my well-being this, this is a, a lovely opportunity Kat, to bring in one key uh, quality improvement concept abby which is understanding data over time and acknowledging that life is variation actually so when we, when we look at data in improvement in the improvement realm we look at data over time and you can imagine data points going up and down and up and down and up and down, hopefully in the direction that you want to go. So if you want to get better at something, it's going in that direction. If you want to reduce something, it's going in that direction. And to your point, Kat, I, I, I think that mirrors the way that we live life. Imagine the way you woke up this morning uh, and the, the way that light came into your eyes as you opened your eyes. It was different from yesterday. I can assure you that. Imagine the rhythm of your breath after you kind of had breakfast. Maybe you had a meeting that was happening immediately and your heart was racing because you were interviewing a patient in your GP practice. And oh my goodness, I've got 23 patients to see before 12 o'clock. Versus Abby, who might have taken a lovely walk with a friend and having coffee and so on. Or me, who went for a run at six in the morning with Mango, my dog, and then... so. Life is variation. I wake up tomorrow and it'll be different. I might be doing the same thing, but it'll be different. So I I, I think there is a lot of uh, parallels between uh, the concept of variation and how we could think about well-being as an ongoing process where there's going to be variation. The last visual I want to invite you guys to think about, and I I don't want to pathologize our conversation, but if we think about the extremes, it might be helpful. So if we think about our mood, you know, some days we feel better than others, inevitably, right? So it's, it's a little bit up and down. If we think about the extremes, we can think about bipolar patients or manic depressive patients. So when somebody's manic, we can think, wow, there's a data point way up there. And when somebody has uh, depression, deep depression, there might be a data point way down there. So the ups and downs of a manic depressive individual may be a bit more extreme than the ups and downs of an individual that does not suffer from manic depression. Uh, and that's a kind of lifelong, ongoing set of opportunities to try to keep those ups and downs in check so that we can learn 
about how we are, about what we are, about what triggers that kind of behavior and how we can improve it and how we can continuously improve it. Thank you. Abby, I know you want to say something, but I just, <laughs> I'm going to take the opportunity. Um, Pedro, when you just talking about um, data over time, I had this lovely image in my head of a load of run charts. And, and Abby, um, you have something called control charts in quality improvement, where you have this variation where the data changes over time. But you also have these kind of limits, upper limits and lower limits, um, which Pedro is sort of talking about there with, you know, people who suffer from bipolar. But actually, I think that idea of really understanding and reflecting on you know yes my mood is varied but am I reaching my limit you know am I reaching the lower limit of of where I actually want to be and what kind of special intervention do I need to do at that point because yes most of the time I can manage my well-being with going for walks with friends and having coffee and um, doing exercise and getting more sleep but you know that is so important, I think, to recognise when actually things are becoming abnormal and, you know, your mood is becoming pathologised. And I think we hear that from a lot of clinicians that we've had on the podcast before about how they've struggled to recognise when they're, they're slipping past those limits. So I just wanted to say that was a really helpful, very nerdy visual <laughs> for me. Um, that's not a question, so it's a comment. Um, I hand back to Abby. I'm sure it's got something more, more of a good question. We'll talk about that more in a bit, but here's a message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. This might be a my inability to kind of really understand what this is all about. But I guess I was thinking, Pedro, when you were speaking, I can definitely see the benefit of, you know, uh, setting goals for yourself or things that you'd like to achieve over time. But my personal experience of depression, which I know we then run the risk of going from well-being into mental health, but that my personal experience is sometimes if you have set goals that you don't achieve, it's very easy then to beat yourself up and feel worse about the fact that you haven't achieved those goals. So sometimes that's not the most helpful thing. And I wonder how you get the balance then with that approach, but making sure that this doesn't come like a, a stick to beat yourself with. Yeah, and that's a latent risk if we if we don't frame this in a in a balanced way. You know, my 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 daughters and I love to eat chocolate, right? And of course, eating chocolate three times a day as the core meal food that you ingest may not be a good thing. Uh, but maybe having a chocolate snack every so often is kind of lovely and necessary almost. Uh, so there are there are healthy ways of framing aims so that we provide ourselves with the flexibility of two things. One is tweaking those aims. 
And number two, uh, internalizing that a name is set in order to allow us to learn and improve continuously. So as opposed to beating ourselves over the head with it. That's a kind of phrase that we hear from uh, our, our uh, you know, managers and leaders in, in, in systems, for instance, where aims get set from the outside. They get imposed on you. So they may feel like, you know, oh, in the monthly meeting, I'm going to get beat around the head because that was an imposed aim and I didn't achieve it. These are our own aims. So it's an opportunity for us to frame those aims as ambitiously or as basically as we want to. And secondly, to take those aims as opportunities to learn and improve regularly. But, but it is a latent risk, Abby, if we, if we go uh, too extreme in the rigidity of the aims and so on. Pedro, do you think you could take us through one of the aims that you set sort of as part of your own sort of intentionality in this area and, you know, how you tweaked it and, and it evolved over time? Yeah, so why don't, don't I give you um, kind of the, the kind of five buckets that I use for my own, uh, and I, I'll call them drivers. So if, if my aim is to improve my well-being, I have five big buckets that I work on and maybe I'll go deeper into one. So those five are uh, the first one is to get moving. So find ways to, I'm standing here as I speak to you guys, I'm not sitting. So I find ways to do things in a mobile manner. I like to run. So for me, running is part of my aim. Uh, so get moving is one. Number two is uh, nurture relationships. I know that for me, feeding the soul through relationships is really important. So, and I have some names about how often I call my mother who is in Venezuela how often I do things with my daughters and so on. So nurture relationships. The third bucket is feeding the soul. And that's about doing things that you truly love that are not necessarily just human relationships. I love to play football. So I try to get at least one bit of football one night a week. And that's part of my aim. The fourth one, which I think it's, it's kind of relevant to our times, is uh, controlling technology. For me, the temptation of checking emails regularly or, or going into Twitter and seeing what people are saying and so on is there as a latent thing. So I have limits on how much time I spend on the phone. And the fifth one is eating and sleeping better. So those are my five, let's call them drivers. So on the on the get moving side, God, just to just to uh, just to exemplify how I went from a short term to a longer term aim. Uh, I I kind of having obligations with work with family and with the ambition of spending a little bit of time with hobbies, I, I was struggling to get running into my day. And I had to be very disciplined about how I went about it. So initially I set a monthly aim of 30 kilometers per week, per, per month, because uh, I knew over 30 days it was highly likely that I would get to that if every time I went out, I ran about five kilometers. So I had a mechanism through the phone, actually, which I carried with me. I don't have a, one of those watches that measure distances, unfortunately, uh, of measuring that and seeing how, how I needed to calibrate it after three months. And then now I have a, an annual aim for running, which is I want to run a thousand kilometers every year. So if you break that down by 52 weeks, that gives you about 20 kilometers per week. And I, having calibrated my first effort in the, in the three months, that aim for me is realistic. And I keep an eye on it. Abby, I don't have a spreadsheet that's here behind my computer screen, 
I don't use it in that sense, but the aim gives me a sense of roughly how many times a week I want to run and roughly what distance I want to run in. If I'm traveling to Australia for work one week and I know that's going to take me 24 hours there and 24 hours back, it might be that one week I don't do my 20 kilometers. It's fine. I don't lose sleep the week after thinking I need to run 40. I just I just know that I have a broad aim and an ambition to run regularly, roughly a distance. So that's one example on the get moving bucket of how I translate it into, uh, into action. For me, it's running. For many people, it's walking. Or for many people, it's standing as opposed to sitting during meetings or taking the stairs as opposed to taking the lift into the office if, if people are back to the office, of course. I really love that. It's It sounds like, not to oversimplify it, but it sounds like a way of almost legitimising those things that you need to do in life to put yourself first that are often quite easy to put on the back burner when you have all, you know, caring and work responsibilities and everything else that often we put before ourselves. So I really like the idea that by setting yourself goals, you're kind of making sure you're doing those things that are so important to your well-being. The, the other thing, Abby, that I want to surface, and, and it's kind of implicit on, on what I just described, is that that works for me. That's my context. And I can work with my context. In my case, I'm married, I have a wife, and I have two daughters. I can get my support system, if we were to use systems thinking, which is another one of the improvement uh, tools, to support me. So I can make it explicit to my wife. Hey, Karen, I'm hoping to run roughly, you know, <laughs> are there times when maybe you can take the kids as opposed to myself? And so, so I can get the system around, but that's very personal. The reality of Abby and your world is, is different to mine. And the reality of Kat and your world, Kat, is different. And I think that's important. Uh, so copy-pasting solutions from the outside is probably not going to work that well. You know, when we when we talk about improvement, I have a... I have an exercise that I ask people to do, and maybe I'll do it with you guys. I say improvement is dot, 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 and people fill in the blank. So what words would you put in there, both of you? Improvement is what? It could be one word or it could be a, a small phrase. I would say improvement is making things okay. better. How about you, Kat? <laughs> well, the first thing that came to my head is everything. <laughs> Right. So I think that I think, you know, it's a challenge, isn't it? Like once you start looking through things with a quality improvement lens, I find that I just find it everywhere. All absolutely. The time. And, and 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 I tend to use that to convey the need to ensure that we honor the individuality of each person and the and the kind of wisdom of each team that we work with. So I say improvement is local. Improvement always has to be local. We have evidence and you guys are amazing at producing evidence. And the teams that are local need to land that evidence into their context, which is unique and a sanctuary for how they work their context. So for us as individuals, that applies to improvement is individual for us. So it has to be something that works for you in your reality. You might get some hints from the evidence, you know, if you look at the Blue Zones research, for instance, you know that moving is important, that relationships are important, that eating well is important and so on. So you may want to translate some of that, but land it in your reality so that it's realistic, it's relevant, and it's kind of driving you as opposed to uh, this kind of 
fades of all it's to the latest diet. Well, yeah, maybe, uh, or maybe not. It needs to be truly owned by, by each of us. Yeah, absolutely, Pedro. And I think, um, I think I'm sure people might listen and, and resonate with those different buckets that you talked about. You know, if I want to improve my well-being overall, you know, what buckets do I need to pay attention to? Um, but I think it's also that process of reflecting and, you know, which which buckets I'm doing quite well on at the moment. You know, yeah, I'm doing really well on moving. I'm doing lots of exercise, but actually um, perhaps I haven't put as much energy into um, nurturing relationships. And I think, you know, it's not that we have to do all of those all the time, but we just have to kind of make sure that our energy is is spread into all of those areas and we're paying attention to some that we may have unintentionally um, let, you know, sort of not given energy to for a while. Um, and, and I think also, as you said, not everyone is going to come up with those same those same areas um the other thing that I really liked about what you said was that um that sort of sense checking of your running you know you didn't say oh I'm gonna run a thousand kilometers this year you kind of checked in with your context and actually how often I am running am I running is that good do I want to run a bit more do I want to run a bit less what's realistic with my wife and my kids and my life um so I think that kind of setting really achievable aims um it's really important again that's not really a question but just do you have anything sort of any reflections on that i, I do actually you said something and I, I just came off screen briefly because i'm gonna grab it to show it to you guys on screen i think the podcast is audio but uh, never mind I'll, I'll communicate the concept i you know i had this and it says the checking journal right here so, Abby, when you asked about the spreadsheets and kind of as you kind of frame your thoughts about the importance of calibration and being kind of aware, this is really helpful for me. So the checking journal has an opportunity each day to have three words in the morning about how you are, uh, then a list of tasks for the day, which you can kind of handwrite, and then a checkout space at the bottom, which allows you to kind of reflect on how your day went. Do I do it 365 days a year? No. Do I do it most days? Absolutely, because uh, it's really helpful to to help me calibrate where I am internally and and the things that I that I want to kind of increase or decrease or where I want to put my focus and energy. So I have a for me a mechanism of daily checking is helpful, and I, and I do a little bit of breathing and a little bit of meditation with some regularity because I find that the kind of noise free. Obviously, sometimes the noise is around, but you know what I mean? You close your eyes, you do a few breaths and so on. Noise-free space. It's a really lovely way of saying, okay, you know, life is really fast and it's really busy and we have a lot to do. And there's a little bit of a private space here. You don't need to go to a spa, somewhere fancy. No, (laughs) five minutes on a sofa, anywhere can help to do that. I love that idea of a check-in journal. I feel like I need to get one. We've had before people talk about um, this idea of at the end of the day kind of writing three good things that have happened. I know it's not quite the same thing, but the kind of that similar idea of just evaluating at the end of the day. Now, I'm going to ask a question that you're both going to probably tell me is really stupid. But um, as a non-clinician, but someone who's aware that clinicians often have to do kind of quality improvement projects for their work, how do you stop talking about quality improvement and well-being turning into feeling a bit like it's just another project that you have to do and actually is more work than it is enjoyment 
I have a couple of thoughts, so I'll maybe get started. I, mean, uh, I, I, I did some of that at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, I completely took out the word quality because this is about improvement. So you normalize it and you make it part of uh, life. And the second thing is um, you, you simplify the adoption of what's useful from quality improvement into well-being improvement, meaning I, I don't have spreadsheets for everything. I may have wanted to, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, because I'm nerdy, but I don't have spreadsheets for everything. I don't uh, plan, do, study, act my cycles in a structured, written way. No, I, I kind of calibrate, I check in, I try to improve, and I have a sense of what my aims are. So I, I, I detechnify it, I simplify it, and I make it relevant to my life so that it doesn't feel... Like, uh, like work. And I, and I think that could be a healthy way of trying to use what's useful from improvement in uh, our pursuit of uh, feeling as well as we want to feel. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I think, um, you know, when we know when we're working with different teams and improvement, we know that different people are driven by different things and different data. And sometimes it's numbers data, and sometimes it's narrative, you know, and stories, it's a, a whole lot of different things. And often it's all of them combined. And I think when we first started talking, I definitely had an image in my mind about kind of numerical tracking and spreadsheets and, you know, numbers of kilometers. But, but actually, when you talked about the check in journal, you know, I think, it doesn't have to be any data that you write down, does that? You know, you can just have a, a self check in where you pause and you ask yourself, you know, how am I? How am I today? You know, what can I do today intentionally to to make that better? Um, and you know, e- even that is is data that you can use and intentionally act on. Um, so I think it's that idea of just making it really work for you and what resonates for you and your preferences in your context. And um, I think I think that's. Um, that's really um it's a really um fascinating part of that kind of local individualizing and, and contextualizing aspect of all of this um, which is so important to make things make things work and i would never say that you were st- stupid questions abby <laughs> absolutely never um i haven't asked any questions i've just reflected on, on, on what i'm hearing um I've slightly run out. Abby, do you have any more questions? Well, I, I was going to ask you a question, Kat, in that I wondered whether as someone who is, you know, really big on quality improvement, whether you'd use quality improvement before in your well-being, and whether actually now, having spoken to Pedro, you might incorporate it into your kind of life and well-being and use it in a way you haven't used it before. Yeah, no, I haven't. I mean, interestingly, I don't think I've intentionally used it before, but I'm aware listening to this conversation that things that I've done in the past that have been really good for my well-being have had some of these flavors to them so for example um when I had a 15 month old baby and looking back I think I was possibly a bit depressed had possibly had a bit of postnatal depression um I was feeling very um, overwhelmed and like I had lost my identity and I didn't have any space for myself. Um, and I really wanted to, to reclaim that. Um, but I found it really hard to justify doing that. Um, so what I did is I signed up for a sponsored walk um, because that felt like a way of legitimizing um, spending that time. So it made it very intentional. And then, you know, what I got with that was a structured training program um, that I could then follow. And each week it kind of built up and each week he did more and went further 
and spent more time. Um, and looking back, that was a really great period of time for me and it had a really positive effect on, on my well-being. So it had lots of these things that, that Pedro talked about in terms of, you know, it had structure, it had kind of structured goals, but they were realistic um, and things that I felt like I was achieving something which which felt good. I felt, you know, that the achievement wasn't a pressure. It was a, a sort of something I could take pride in and, and be fulfilled with, um, which I, you know, I, I had sort of my concerns about this approach. As you said, Abby, it might feel too much, too much pressure in a stress system or a stress person. But actually, I think it can be very self-reinforcing and get you into a really virtuous cycle. So very long answer. I think I haven't done it intentionally in the past, but I will definitely do it intentionally in the future. Abby and Kat, if you, if you allow me, uh, only because we have the platform and you have the opportunity to edit this, uh, I, I do have a, an ongoing concern in my heart, I suppose, based on what I'm observing in my work across the world, in my kind of circles of uh, relationships, be that professional or personal, about a relationship with technology. And I think it's a real opportunity. Uh, the combination of the kind of infinite scrolling function of technology so we can just keep going and the ease of availability of access to all sorts of information and misinformation, I think pose a, a risk actually that we, to some extent, I think are underestimating and to some extent is keeping us too distracted to pay enough attention. So I, uh, if I was to have a, a strong recommendation for the listeners of the podcast as they think about their well-being, it's to assess their relationship with technology. Uh, so, you know, to ask themselves a question, have they taken a look at their screen time? I think that's a really, really excellent point. Thank you, Pedro. When you were talking, I was kind of reflecting, and I'm sure you think about this with your daughters, that we often hear in the news kind of stories about the impact of technology on young people but actually we don't hear a lot about the impact on adults and what we should be doing because we're kind of left alone to do our own thing but you're right it can have such a huge impact I mean I know I had to delete Instagram from my phone because it I got into that kind of pattern of scrolling for hours for no reason and now I kind of purposely don't take my phone if I'm walking the dog or other things like that but it is you're right I think if I looked at my screen time measures I would be really horrified <laughs> absolutely I, I I always um so I was quite unwell Pedro with my mental health back in 2019 and um, I always thought that was fantastic preparation for the pandemic because at that time I realized you know Twitter Facebook was was really damaging um my ability to recover so I sort of took myself off all of all of those and stopped consuming a lot of, of news media um and actually I found that incredibly helpful um during Covid when I saw others around me very kind of consumed uh, with with hypervigilance it was it was very good protective uh, protective effect um but I, I think i come back to the idea of intentionality that you mentioned you know so much of this is is unintentional or habitual you know you just reach for it because it's there and i think you know that that moment of pausing and reflecting but you know what am i actually doing why am i doing it what effect is it having is it serving me or or is it not serving me i think that's such an important part of this process and you know with quality improvement I don't know what your experience is, Pedro, but so often, maybe at the beginning, people's impulse is to move very fast and, you know, quality improvement is brilliant and it is agile and it does move very fast. But I think having that pause at the beginning where you stop and say, 
what are we trying to achieve? You know, what do we need to do to get there? And how will we know that what we're doing is is helping or not? I think that pause is so important. Um, and I think you've described it really well in, in your kind of intention setting. Yeah, and, and, and just to build on your point about pausing, uh, the, there is something about the counterintuitive nature of doing less to do more. And, uh, and I, I love a phrase that I heard from a, a swimming coach. He said, uh, you have to swim slow to swim well. And you have to swim well to swim fast. So over scheduling our lives to the inch of every second of every day of the week is probably not healthy. Uh, so scheduling, on the other hand, free time, or I like to call it do nothing time, is probably a very helpful thing to allow us to be even more present when we need to be with the people that we love, more present in the work that we do, and more effective in general. So doing less to do more and making time to do less, it's completely counterintuitive. We, we think that a calendar is meant to be filled with meetings and activities and to-dos and here to there and how long is it going to take me and can I squeeze three more things in between and can I yes we can be hyper effective for sure and we also deserve a little bit of do nothing time so as we as we think about our lives I, I think it's an important consideration for all of us to think about how much free time unstructured time uh, we have and and there I say it and I may come across very selfish. And me time, uh, regardless of how complex our circumstances are at home or at work, uh, there, 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 there has to be at least consideration for a tiny bit of time for yourself. Uh, whether that's breathing five minutes in a sofa or running 30 minutes or walking or just consider that as a, as a gift to yourself and remember you know if the audience of this podcast is primarily clinicians there is a fundamental principle to well-being which is you can't give what you don't have so forget about being empathetic or compassionate or kind or if you are absolutely knackered and you're running on empty all the time you have to have something to give in order to be able to give it uh, so um, it, it is really important that we find a way to do less in order to do more Well, Kat, I thought that discussion with Pedro was so interesting. We started out with what I thought was going to be a really complicated concept that I would find difficult to understand. And actually, although obviously it is complicated, um, a lot of the ideas that he was talking about, I can see could be quite easily and simply integrated into your own life, you know, just kind of making not targets necessarily, but goals for yourself that you incorporate, but you then take them slowly and you kind of test your way into them and make sure you know you don't lose sleep over not achieving them and all of that just made perfect sense to me so I thought it was it was really interesting and I've learned loads yeah I, I completely agree I did think it was going to be very technical and lots of spreadsheets and and while I do love a spreadsheet and use them a lot at work I mean the idea of having that around my well-being did leave me a bit cold um and I think sort of it's so much more than that um and this idea of I just think giving yourself the gift he said you know that gift of um being intentional about your well-being and how I guess you know we're all so time poor that being intentional about it will just 
make it so much richer and bring so much more benefit. You know, if I really spent five minutes thinking, what do I really need to nourish my soul? I think that would really change how I choose to spend my time. Um, and the fact that I've never created the time to sit down and ask myself that question is is really interesting when I spend so much time thinking about well-being. Um, so it's definitely brought a whole new set of questions and ideas to the forefront for me. And, and I'm looking forward to, to really using them in a way that's very personal. Uh, and I hope that we listeners are going to, and they said readers, uh, and I hope that listeners are going to be able to do the same thing, just take some of those ideas away with them. And, and as you said, Abby, sort of try and just test them out and then sort of evaluate them and say, you know, is this working for me? Is this not working for me? Um, and I just, another thing I've been reflecting on is the power of saying, you know, I choose this or I, I want this. You know, I recently started doing some personal training and I've been doing it for about three months and you know, I said to myself this week, do you know what? I don't want to do this. It's painful and it's horrible and I may be getting fitter, but I don't enjoy it. Um, and actually I want to spend that time going for a walk or doing yoga instead um, and not judging yourself for those choices and understanding what really works for you, I think is really important. I've gone completely off topic there. No, I, absolutely. I, I really like that point though, Kat, because that, and I, and I asked, I know I asked Pedro when we were speaking, but my only concern was that you know, when you set goals, they do become things that you then hold yourself up against. And I've personally found in the past that those can be quite difficult. And I am really impressed that you've made that decision to stop doing something that you initially started because you thought it would be helpful and now you don't like anymore. Because I think that can be just as hard as starting in the first place. And I think that sort of thing is really important. The other thing I wanted to reflect on what we discussed with Pedro is I hope that I know that so many of our listeners are probably quite time poor and have very busy working days and I just hope that people are able to carve out even as he says you know that little time even if it's five minutes to think about yourself which often I think especially people in who work kind of in caring professions struggle to do because they're so used to putting other people first to go no this is my me time and actually in a way I feel like as I said before, it, this this kind of approach seems to legitimise that a bit more, saying, no, it's OK that I want to do this thing for 10 minutes because it's something I've decided I'm going to do. So, yeah, I really hope that people find that helpful. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that invitation to see what you can do for other people, like how you can help them to, to carve out that time um, and support them. Well, that's all we have time for. So I'll say a huge thank you to Pedro Delgado for joining us on the podcast. And you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. We'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. And until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.